Welcome to OnSpec, where you can hear stories that bring you closer to the globe. I'm your host, Ferry Banawa. Afghanistan's infamous for conflict and war, but few know about its hidden treasures. Emeralds, rubies, lapis, and trillions of dollars worth of minerals are hidden in mines. Under its earth lay historic artifacts, some dating back thousands of years. But who has access to these antiquities? And where do they end up? Journalist Margot Ben, who's based in Kabul, traveled to Nimruz province to find out. We're on the dirt road, passing by a small, dirty stream. Little kids play in the water, and women are washing clothes. It's about 45 degrees Celsius, that's 113 degrees Fahrenheit. I'm in a beat-up Toyota Corolla from the 90s, with my fixer, two friends of his, and an officer of the criminal police who accepted to give us a tour of the desert's various smuggling routes. Corollas are the staple car in Afghanistan. All around the country, people decorate their rides with flashy stickers that range from inspirational quotes to portraits of former warlords. Those who don't own a car adorn their motorbike with stickers that read, Beautiful Corolla. But here in Nimroz, they're bare. Most cars, Corollas, but also larger SUVs, some with tinted windows, don't have as much as a license plate, which makes them untraceable. Nimruz province is an arid strip of desert in southwestern Afghanistan, and it's one of the main trafficking hubs of the country. It borders Iran in the west and Pakistan in the south. That's two porous borders flanked by remote badlands, an ideal spot to smuggle drugs, people, petrol, and pretty much anything you want. We're going to the borderlands in a low-profile car, so as not to be detected. I don't have the authorization to bring you here. Also, if criminals see a police car, they'll shoot us. That's the officer from the criminal police. We'll call him Muhammad. He's doing us a favor by driving us around in a civilian car, so we can't mention his real name. His job is to fight criminals who roam the desert, some waiting to cross the border. The smugglers are well organized and well armed. They have good weapons like heavy machine guns. If anyone tries to stop or arrest them, they'll fight back. So when I drive in a police car, I also need to be well prepared for eventual face-offs. As we cross paths with yet another unmarked Corolla, Muhammad takes out his handgun and sets it beside him on the seat, just in case. It's so dusty, we can barely see a few meters in front of us. Can you see those cars? That's Jamal, a friend who lives in Nimroz. I'd met him a year ago, and he ended up being my translator during the trip. In the distance, a caravan of pickup trucks zooms west. We're smuggling the people to Iran through Pakistan border. Uh, Europe, go to Europe. People. First they go to Iran, then from Iran they go, will go to Europe. Look, look how many there are. So all these cars, wow. Video. Under the scorching sun, the passengers in the back resemble tiny shadows 
bouncing and swaying as the trucks slalom between the dunes. Most of them are fleeing war or poverty and have come all the way from other provinces. Here they hope to cross the border, darting into the unknown. Some will stay in Iran, others will attempt the even more arduous journey to Europe, but the unlucky ones will get deported right back to Afghanistan. In the few days I spent in Nimroz, such scenes became normal, as did lines of trucks filled, I was told, with illegally imported petrol crossing the border from Iran, and random vehicles roaming the desert. There are a couple of houses, uh, a couple of structures over there. They're in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the desert. What are these houses? That's where the smugglers stock drugs before passing them across the border in Iran, during sandstorms, because the sand blurs the surveillance cameras placed on the border gates. But I'm not here to talk to people traffickers and drug smugglers, although bumping into them seems inevitable. Another shady business here is artifact smuggling. Illegal excavations happen all over the country, but Nimroz is one of the provinces least explored by archaeologists. It's thought to harbor many treasures, and since it's so strategically placed next to Iran and Pakistan, antiques are easily smuggled abroad. Day 2. I've been going around the desert for hours in another beat-up Corolla, trying to find someone willing to speak to us about the antiquities business. I've been going more or less from house to house trying to find people who want to speak to us. Um, all of them say that they go to look for artifacts, um, but no one wants to speak openly. That's because it's illegal. And they say authorities are particularly aggressive against locals who commit petty crimes because they're unable to catch the most dangerous criminals who belong to well-armed mafia organizations. Jamal, my translator, is trying to convince a group of men to take us along to look for artifacts. Nope, still no luck. Since we haven't been able to speak to anyone in villages, now we're going off-road, um, very near the Iranian border. Iran is about 100 or 200 meters away from us, and we're hoping to find someone um, in these remote areas who can speak a little bit more freely. Afghanistan has an incredibly rich history, spanning from the Zoroastrians to Alexander the Great, right up to the British rule and the Soviet invasion of 1979. Hundreds of battles have been fought here. Civilizations have cohabited and clashed and replaced one another. So the earth hides many artifacts, some dating back to 200 BC. But because of the conflict, archeological digs are virtually impossible in most of the country. Teams can't access areas controlled by the Taliban, the Afghan branch of the Islamic State group, or criminal gangs. So local residents go out to find artifacts. Sometimes local mafias also try their luck. And people here tell me that in the past, local authorities and warlords came with heavy machinery to reap the treasures from the earth and the sand. At last, we find a group of young men who agree to take us to their usual digging spot in the middle of the desert. They're dressed in colorful tunics that float in the wind. As the heat blurs the air, 
They look like white, yellow, blue, and pink watercolors. Now and again, they crouch over to inspect what might look like an artifact. This, what is it, do you think? Why is this stone uh, important? Is it old? Seems like it has some kind of design. Shamsuddin is 30 years old. He lives in the desert with his family and says he's been digging at this particular site since he was a little boy. Since I was 12 years old, actually. You see, in August when the heavy winds create sandstorms, these swipe the sand and move the dunes, and this reveals historical artifacts underground. If we manage to find any, we can sell them in shops. We came here as families with our wives and children and camp in the desert. It's a very difficult job, but we don't have any choice. That's how we make money. Shamsuddin and his friends aren't big smugglers known here as businessmen. They're just residents of the desert, hoping to make a few bucks by finding the odd coin or piece of ancient pottery. Think of them as treasure hunters, the first cog in a long process by which the artifacts change hands, travel the country in a series of SUVs and Corollas, and eventually are exported or sold to wealthy people in big cities like Kabul. We don't have any big machinery. We just dig with our bare hands and try to find any small objects or coins that sandstorms may have uncovered. Most of the big artifacts have been found by people who are before us, people with machines and who are able to dig and find big objects. Not much luck today. Shamsuddin and his friends have found a couple of pottery fragments, but they're too small to raise the interests of any buyer. But when the treasure hunters do find artifacts, they bring them to local shops in the provincial capital, Zaranj. That's where we're headed now. In the colorful bazaar, we enter a small shop. The window boasts dozens of rocks, gems, and ancient coins. Inside, the walls are decorated with thick red tapestry from which hang a myriad of bracelets and necklaces. Shelves are heaped with antique bowls, jugs, and coins. The shopkeeper is an elderly man named Haji Khairullah. He's been in the business for 30 years, and he's the president of Nimra's Artifact Sellers Union. I use the word union by lack of a better one, and because that's how my translator best described it. Let's say he gained respect as one of the oldest artifact sellers in the market. This bowl is from the time of Alexander the Great, before Islam came to Afghanistan. These other artifacts are from the same time period. This figurine represents the face of one of the first kings of Afghanistan. People bring me the objects they find in the desert. There are several sites around here where locals go to look for artifacts. Most of the time, the people who then come here to buy things are businessmen who will bring them to Kabul to be sold at a higher price. Nimroz is one of the country's poorest provinces. There's not a big market for these relics. To follow the trail of the artifacts, we need to go to the Afghan capital, Kabul, where the so-called businessmen regularly bring artifacts from the provinces to shopkeepers. The shopkeepers will in turn sell them at a higher price.
Cobble's Chicken Street is a mostly pedestrian street lined with antique shops. Before the war, this is where tourists once purchased beautiful souvenirs and traditional carpets. I head to the Nuri Brothers shop. It's discreetly hidden in a seemingly derelict building. To find it, you need to go up three flights of stairs and down a grey hallway past some empty or closed shops. Then, you open a glass door and you find yourself in a messy, colorful Alibaba's cave. Swords, daggers, boxes, jewelry, pistols dating from the British presence in the 1800s. Some items might be fake, others are from India, but according to an archaeologist who's been working here for years, most of it is authentic. Haji Acha is the eldest of the two Nuri brothers. He shows me around the shop, his small black eyes darting from one object to the other. Most of these pieces belong in museums, not in a dusty shop to be sold to the highest bidder. But Haji Acha says some of his clients are politicians and members of the Afghan elite who don't seem to care much about whether their shopping habits are illegal or not. So where does all this stuff come from? He says businessmen come from all over the country to bring him artifacts which they bought from local people like Shamsuddin, the treasure hunter from the Nimrus desert. I guess the smaller smugglers don't really have a choice but to accept whatever price Haji Acha will pay. Nangyalai, the younger brother, usually keeps the shop in Kabul, while Haji Acha mans their other shop in Dubai. Today he's here to pick up some pieces to take to the Emirates. He sits in a large chair, polishing an ancient-looking sword. This sword here is worth about $3,000. We bring the most valuable objects to Dubai because that's where our most wealthy clients are. And few are very knowledgeable about archaeology. Two years ago, I purchased a sword here in Kabul for $2,000. And in Dubai, I sold it to an Arab for $30,000. It was the best deal of my career. At nightfall, in a dark alley near a petrol station, we meet Ahmed, not his real name. He's a drug trafficker who travels the country from Helmand, a Taliban stronghold also known for its opium poppy fields, to Nimroz and Kabul. He says he knows many artifact smugglers and understands why they chose that trade. It's less profitable than drugs, but also safer. They do it because it's less dangerous than the drug business. And some Taliban groups don't allow us to sell drugs inside Afghanistan, so we have to find ways to export them. But the Taliban don't have any issue with smuggling old potteries and so on, even inside the country. Afghanistan has been at war almost non-stop for 40 years now, and the conflict is still ongoing. So for 40 years, it's been very difficult to conduct archaeological research in the country. Treasures disappear in private collections in Afghanistan and around the world. The US is one of the main importers of Afghan artifacts, but art aficionados and smugglers also take them to places like the Persian Gulf, the UK and France. This is heartbreaking for Afghan history lovers like Noor Aha Nuri. Uh, this is Noor Aha Nuri, uh, director of Archaeology Institute of Afghanistan. He's a tall young man who's just about 30 years old. I meet him in his office, which is packed with books and artifacts and colorful paintings. 
He just received his master's degree in archaeology a couple of years ago, but he's already the head of the Ministry of Culture's archaeological department. Due to this, uh, uh, the 30-40 years uh, of war, majority of our experienced archaeologists, they were mostly they were died or they they migrated from Afghanistan to the other countries. Uh, like we have around. 13 archaeologists for all, all over Afghanistan. But Noor decided that his life would be dedicated to preserving his country's heritage. By the terrorists and Talibs and, and Daesh and some other people. They are doing the illegal excavations from those archaeological sites. Recently, we have created a special uh, force for this. But the issue is the number of these uh, forces are yet very low. Like we have around uh, 350 uh, police that are, those are responsible for protecting the archaeological sites. But in, uh, in compared to our archaeological sites that we have identified, the art is more than uh, 4,000 archaeological sites. That's clearly not enough, which means that in many provinces of Afghanistan, locals, organized crime groups, the Taliban or even ISIS are free to loot the country's heritage, smuggling it outside its borders and into wealthy people's private collections. Welcome back to On Spec. We heard journalist Margot Ben's story from Afghanistan. I'm from there, but I haven't been back since 2007. Hearing her in the field took me back to my reporting days, but I didn't venture out to Nimruz. Margot took great risks going there because the area belongs to smugglers, really. I spoke to Margot after she returned to Kabul. Margot, great story. Afghanistan is Manistan to me, especially in a place like Nimruz. What was it like to travel as a woman there? Well, actually, you know, being a woman here has never proven to be an issue for me um, and can even sometimes be an asset. Uh, for example, when I travel outside Kabul, I usually wear a burqa, which comes in handy to remain anonymous, um, especially when crossing checkpoints and so on. And in Nimroz, I wore a niqab and it was pretty easy to keep a low profile. Um, generally, nobody ever made me feel bad for being a female journalist traveling alone with a translator. And my female colleagues and myself have received the occasional inappropriate comment or text message or call. But that's something we have to deal with in many other parts of the world, not just Afghanistan. Um, but of course, I really do need to stress here that Afghan female journalists wouldn't necessarily get the same treatment. It'd be much more frowned upon. Um, they'd likely face much bigger threats than just inappropriate texts um, if they went around traveling on their own in the provinces. And it's unlikely that their families would let them do that in the first place. That's, that's exactly right. I think Afghans, specifically Afghan men, treat foreign journalist women almost like they're a third gender. And I think with us Afghans, there's a lot more restrictions. We have to follow a certain set of conducts and rules. So were there any moments when you thought you should not have gone to Nimruz? No, not at all. Um, I traveled to Nimruz before and it became one of my favorite reporting memories. There are so many stories to explore there. And this time around, I was actually really excited to be working on something else than 
armed groups uh, for once. Uh, I should mention also that the main threat to Nimroz is criminality, but you don't have any terrorist attacks like in other places, including Kabul. Uh, from what local residents told me and from what I could sense myself, in the provincial capitals around, the war is really not that present in everyday life. You don't feel that awful tension and heaviness you sometimes feel in Kabul, particularly in the aftermath of a terrorist attack. It isn't necessarily lawless, is it? Well, that's the thing. I mean, it is lawless in the sense that there's so much crime and organized crime, and it is, you know, uh, an epicenter for smuggling and trafficking. Uh, but there, there's not the sense of chaos, or, or you know, the, there's not the sense that a terrorist attack could could um, could occur any time. Uh, there's not the sense that uh, there could be an explosion in a wedding hall, like in Kabul, for instance. And the atmosphere is just completely different. It's it's a different kind of tension. Uh, but uh, you don't necessarily think about in everyday life, at least when you're passing, you know, just passing by like I was. Um, so it's, the, what I mean is the war and the violence of the war uh, as we imagine it with uh, the suicide attacks and the conflict with the Taliban is really not that present in everyday life in Zaranj. Uh, but it's more that, yeah, I mean, organized crime syndicates and smugglers do detain most of the city in a sense because they they you know they hold the businesses and they do their own trafficking it's a different form of violence um what was your first impression of the area this was your second trip so when you first went there and and even this time well, one of the most striking elements is the heavy Iranian influence, and this manifests itself in different ways. Um, the building's architecture is more Iranian than Afghan, and people overwhelmingly pay in Iranian currency. Uh, there's an entire street at the market where you can exchange Iranian rials, uh, dollars and Afghanis. Not to mention that if you venture out to the desert, even just a tiny bit outside Zaranj, you're just a walking distance from the neighboring country. And you can even clearly see uh, watchtowers and infrastructure inside Iran. And why this story in particular, Margot? What was interesting to you about antiquities? The last time I went to Nimroz, I actually worked on the Iranian influence and um, and the, the links between the Taliban and Iran. Uh, so I really wanted to work on something completely different. And I had wanted to work on the topic of archaeology ever since I arrived here in Afghanistan almost two years ago, because it's an amazing place to explore that subject. I mean, Afghanistan has such an incredibly rich history. So many battles have been fought here. So many armies tried to invade. So many traders passed through the country on their way across Asia and beyond. And yet because of the war, archaeological digs have largely been impossible in most area of the country since decades. So I'd been searching for an interesting way to illustrate this. And when I realized that the antiquities smuggling business was such a thing here, I knew, I just knew I had my story. It's something that's scarcely been explored. I didn't find any media report out of Afghanistan on the subject. In fact, a number of researchers told me that um, this is really an underrated phenomenon, something that's uh, extremely difficult to get information about. And that's really, and that's really worth uh, looking into. I chose to go to Nimroz in particular because I wanted to be able to evoke the different types of trafficking going on in the country, uh, of which the antiquities business is just one part. Uh, and Nimroz happens to be on both. Uh, sorry, and Nimroz happens to be uh, both smuggling central and home to many unexplored archaeological sites, 
or sites that were abandoned many years ago. Uh, but to be clear, uh, you can find archaeological treasures pretty much everywhere in the country. The shopkeepers I met in Kabul uh, said they receive stuff from basically all over. A cool fact about treasures comes from the communist era, Margot, which I'm not fond of because that's when my family fled. But the last communist president, Najibullah, hid a trove of relics from the Mujahideen, fearful that they would loot and sell it. And they have done that. Um, I think it was that collection that was later exhibited around the world in, in museums. Are there any stories like that now? Um, well, there are many stories going around, and certainly many valuable artifacts are being kept in the private collections of wealthy people in Kabul and abroad. Uh, the two shopkeepers we met in the report, the Nuri brothers, uh, said most of their clients in Kabul were well-to-do Afghans, or government officials even, who don't really care about... Um, you know, whether their purchase is legal or not. Uh, and there are also stories of former warlords keeping valuable artifacts at home uh, as personal collections. Wow, that's disappointing. Uh, what do you hope people will take away from this story? Well, mostly I'd say that I hope listeners will take away that Afghanistan's not just about war and the Taliban and ISIS, and that war is not just about combat and suicide attacks. Here it's also about a nation's entire heritage being sold to the highest bidder and often exported illegally instead of being preserved in museums. Of course, the human toll of the war is terrifying. Th tens of thousands of people have been killed. Tens of thousands were wounded or disappeared altogether after, after being arrested or abducted. But in Afghanistan and in any other country for that matter, there's also many other consequences to the war. And one of them is that in the chaos, a nation's treasures are quickly vanishing. And that's a vastly underreported and very disheartening issue. Many in impoverished regions say, so what? We're poor and we as humans are way more important than these old relics. We should be able to make money and feed ourselves from it. What would you say to that? Well, yeah, of course. Um, but there's a difference between Shamsuddin and his friends who dig the earth with their hands in the hope of making a few dollars and actual traffickers who use machinery and export valuable pieces of their country's heritage for a very good profit. When I'm wandering in a shiny Western museum like in London and New York, I wonder how much of the work is stolen, not just from the period of colonialism, but the contemporary wars in ancient lands. Are there laws that prevent museums from buying these artifacts? How do they know if it's stolen? Actually, until quite recently, there were no regulations uh, effectively protecting countries' heritage. Uh, and the rules which did exist were not exactly in the favor of the host countries. For example, in Afghanistan in the 20s and 30s, French excavation teams were allowed to keep 50% of the objects they found, which ended up in museums in France. Uh, this was done with the agreement of the Afghan government, and the system was actually called partage, which means sharing in French. Uh, the system was widely used throughout the Middle East as well, um, in countries such as Iraq and Syria, and by other countries than France, um, for that matter. Uh, today, however, it's widely recognized that a country should be the sole owner of its own heritage, and international laws and rules, such as a convention adopted by UNESCO in 1970, um, reflects this 
much more. Uh, so museums are much more reluctant, for example, to accept artifacts from suspicious origins or the origins of which are not perfectly known. And recently, Western countries uh, like France and the UK have actually uh, returned artifacts to Afghanistan uh, and other countries after finding out that they'd been illegally smuggled or uh, brought to the country a long time ago under obsolete agreements. You didn't follow the artifacts trail outside of Afghanistan's border. That's another story. But do you know what happens once these artifacts cross the border? And how do they cross borders anyway? Well, technically, it's illegal to bring more than 100 US dollars worth of artifacts outside the country, uh, but it's quite easy to do so. Uh, checks at Kabul airport aren't always as thorough as they could be. And anyway, artifacts are often brought outside Afghanistan by road, uh, mostly to Pakistan. And then from there, uh, they're usually flown to Dubai or to other places in Asia, Europe, the US. Um, private collectors, such as Afghans who live abroad part of the time, also bring artifacts back home uh, out of their countries or of origin. So, I mean, there are rules um, that are supposed to be respected, but it's actually quite easy to circumvent them. Thank you, Margot, for bringing us the story, and thank you for listening to On Spec. This episode was edited by me, produced by Oscar Durant. A big hooray to those who did voiceovers, including Fatal Emar Rabi and Omar Farouk. A shout out to Jenny Chu for donating to On Spec. For those who opted for prizes for donating to our successful Kickstarter campaign, you should have gotten them in the mail, or it's on the way still. We've started a blog called Reporter's Notebook. As a way to engage with our audience, we want you to write for us if you have a local story that affects us globally. We want to give those the mic who usually don't get the chance. Contact us at onspecpodcast at gmail.com. In our next and final episode for the season, we're taking you to the Arizona and U.S.-Mexican border. If you're quarantined at home, worried about the coronavirus right now, we send you positive vibes and healthy thoughts. We'll get through this.